Welcome to Sleepover Cinema, where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of those who would do anything to be made over by those pretty ladies in the Emerald City. I'm Hannah Leach, a writer, musician, audio producer, and the number one hype woman of Judy Garland's Live at Carnegie Hall. And I'm Audrey Leach, director, editor, producer, and infamous friend of Dorothy. (laughs) (laughs) We are the sister duo, also known as Two Pink Productions, and we haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them. We're going to explore the good, the bad, and the nonsensical of the movies that first inspired our love for film in an attempt to answer the question, are these movies actually good? And at the end of the day, do we really care if they are? Today we are talking about 1939's The Wizard of Oz. The wonderful Wizard of Oz, we hear. He is the Wizard of Wins, if ever a Wizard was. If ever a Wizard of Wins, there was. The Wizard of Oz is one because, 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 because the wonderful things he does. We're off to see the Wizard, the wonderful Wizard of Oz. friend of Dorothy means. Audrey's like, Audrey's like, queer people don't owe you an identity label. (laughs) (laughs) So Audrey, how's your day going so far? Today is a good day. Today's a good day. Ooh, why? (laughs) Because it's our grandpa's birthday. True. Valentine's Day. I am going to this restaurant later called Tea and Sympathy. That is like my favorite place to go to. Mm -hmm. It's British. It's like British food. Everybody that works there is British and I can get my favorite meal there. I went to some thrift stores earlier trying to find purple things. I'm not going to elaborate on that, but... You'll find out why soon enough. You'll know. And I didn't find anything good. And I even, I went to the... The urban jungle, the giant, and I didn't find a fucking thing. Go ahead. And we hit a thousand subscribers finally after we did berating everybody for weeks. (laughs) I finally posted on my Instagram story being like, you want to do something nice today? Click this button and then it actually worked. So shout out to that. I will say, though, there's a lot of listeners who were like consistent listeners who interact with us in the DMs who messaged me and were like, I just subscribed. I don't know how I wasn't. I want to pause for one second to text grandpa happy birthday because I will forget. Yeah, I'm kind of sick today. I woke up this morning and was like, time to get to work, ladies. And then was like, oh, I feel awful. So I laid on the couch and I watched an hour of The Bachelor, which I'm on season 26. It's my first season of The Bachelor. If you have opinions on Clayton, let me know. Clayton? It's a mess. Here's the thing. So his name is Clayton and half the girls say Clayton and the other half say Clayton. It's funny to watch people like struggle with how they're going to pronounce it. Yeah. I just yeah. like can't get behind The Bachelor at all. It's just not, it's not my thing. I even watched a season I'm, of it. I watched the 2020 season when it was the first Black Bachelor. And that was yeah. the, the reason I watched it because I was just intrigued. And it was such a mess. Yeah. It was such a hot mess. And it was just bad. I actually <laughs> heard that that one was a mess, but I don't remember why. Because the girl that he picked got canceled for going to like an antebellum like sorority party. (laughs) That is so tragic. That shit. And then everyone canceled her and then they are together, I think. Or like they were together after the fact. Like he was like, it's okay. (laughs) I remember that. I mean, in terms of problematic things she could have done, that's not as bad as it could have been. Okay, so this week's question for the culture... The culture is super sick right now. It's actually really bad, period. This is related to The Wizard of Oz tangentially. So the musical Wicked 
when does a musical, specifically Wicked, when does it hit like Phantom of the Opera or like Chicago status in terms of it's an institution for better or for worse? And it it goes from being a musical to being a little bit of a meme. Do you feel like Wicked has hit that point? I think it's like right in the middle. I think it's it's not quite there because I still see it as feeling somewhat modern compared to other shows that have run for a really long time. I would still want to see Wicked and I've seen it like four times probably. I've only seen it once. No, that's not true. I saw it twice. (laughs) I saw it twice. I saw it twice. I saw it. When we were really little, and then I saw it. And in Florida. No, we saw Phantom of the Opera in Canada. We've only seen Wicked twice together. I thought we saw Phantom and Wicked in Canada. No, (laughs) it was just Phantom. I know one of the times I was like a sophomore or like a freshman in high school, because I remember the picture. That was the Florida one, because I have my hair extensions in. With my, I have a high-low dress on we, with, a, with a tribal print. We literally, when we would go to Florida on breaks, we used to go to this one mall called Coconut Point Mall. <laughs> and we would go to the Delia's and get like the most expensive, like, well, not the most expensive, but like an extravagant dress there for New Year's because we tended to be in Florida for New Year's. I just that rem- may be true for you, but <laughs> I definitely never got an extravagant dress from Delia's. Well, no, it wasn't necessarily Delia's always, but we would dress up for New Year's or like we would have yes. reasons to dress up. But it's just funny that we were like bringing outfits to Florida. Like, I don't- Oh, yeah, we were like dressing uh, for was- like kind of no reason. Yeah. I kind of feel like it's a meme. I mean, I know, I think that our circles are very specific in terms of like musical theater people or like people that grew up around musical theater people. And it's just really easy to make fun of Wicked because it kind of has that like, I want to be Eponine vibe to it like belter girl magnet thing okay this is not related to whether or not it's a meme if you had to play Elphaba or glinda who would you want to play i think the role of glinda is more fun yeah Um, i agree i would want to do that yeah i think the role is more fun you get to fly in the thing you get to have bubbles you get to do you get to the costumes are prettier like i think that that is just more fun. Yeah. But obviously it would be a serve also to be Alpha. But yeah. I think it's a little more grounded and a little less fun. And harder vocally. Glinda? No, Alphaba is harder. I oh, think Alphaba yeah, is harder. It's definitely harder. It's definitely harder. Yeah. People that are really good at belting are superhuman, in my opinion. That just reminds me of the fact that I'm coming to New York on Friday and the karaoke room is about to never be the same after <laughs> we've been in there. We're about to cause permanent chemical change to the to the karaoke yeah. room. I feel bad for everybody else who will be present, but that's okay. Sorry. I mean, everyone them. else everyone else who's gonna be present will probably be equally annoying. Shall we talk about the Wizard of Oz? Yeah. The Wizard of Oz was released on August 25th, 1939. Um, It was not rated because at the time movies weren't rated, um, but it's rated TVG and Common Sense Media says that it's appropriate for ages six and up. The movie was directed by very famous director Victor Fleming, who that very same year directed Gone with the Wind. He was also well known for having directed A Guy Named Joe and Test Pilot. And I just think it's interesting. His first directing credit was in 1919. Like, it's just so wild to think. Like, 1939 doesn't seem that old, but 1919 seems really old. Yeah. It's just interesting. There's a bunch of other directors that were involved in this movie. There were four other directors and we're going to uh, lightly touch on some of them, but Victor Fleming is the one credited credited with having directed it. So one thing we're going to get into a lot with this movie is that there, almost more than any other big Hollywood movie, there are so many stories about the production of this movie and how it was so bad and so fraught and so like historical in so many ways, but it's also 
a kind of known fact that Judy Garland would kind of embellish some of her anecdotes about the movie the older she got, just like for the sake of giving the people what they wanted. So we'll talk more about that later in we get. But one of the anecdotes about him, and this one has been corroborated by a lot of people, is that Victor Fleming, during the scene where Judy Garland is like interacting with the lion for the first time, she couldn't stop laughing because she thought the actor was really funny. And in the middle of takes, Victor Fleming came up to her and like slapped her in the face and was like, get it together. Apparently, once the scene was done, he was so ashamed of himself, he ordered the crew to punch him in the face. (laughs) But instead, Judy kissed him on the nose and was like, I hold no ill will against you, which is so icky. But it's all foreshadowing for things that will happen later on. So other directors, I'm just going to say their names. George Cukor, Mervyn Leroy, who was also like the main producer, Normand Taurog, Richard Thorpe, and King Vidor, who he directed all of the Kansas scenes, which is interesting to me that the Kansas scenes had a different director than everything else. But With a production this huge, I guess it makes sense. And it was so early on in the industry that like, sure. Yeah, I mean, that kind of reminds me of like what is referred to now as like a second unit director, which Mm -hmm. is like sometimes if a movie is shot in multiple locations or in a very complicated way, they will have a second unit director, third unit director and so on. So that's like probably what it was basically. Yeah, that is probably how it worked. The very, very good music is by Harold Arlen and Dia Parberg. Harold Arlen wrote the music itself, and he wrote the extremely popular standards, The Man That Got Away, Come Rain, Come Shine, and Get Happy, which are songs that ultimately went down in history as very essential parts of Judy Garland's like cabaret canon, whether they were in movies that she was in, and then she would sing them live at her concerts. They were songs that became very synonymous with her, which is cool. Yip Harburg did the lyrics and he wrote the lyrics to Brother, Can You Spare a Dime, which is a very famous song, April in Paris, and It's Only a Paper Moon, which is obviously also a very famous song. Herbert Strothart did the score and also did a great job on that. The writing credits for this movie are a little extreme. So 20 people have writing credits and a lot of them are like contributing writers. So that is what it is. But the screenplay was written by a combination of Noel Langley, Florence Ryerson and Edgar Allan Wolfe. And of course, that is based off of the book series by L. Frank Baum, the Wizard of Oz series, Adventures in Oz. There's a like several of them and obviously they're really famous and different adaptations of The Wizard of Oz have taken different parts of different books in the series and worked them into movies. Kind of similarly to the Alice in Wonderland movie adaptations where they pluck things from different stories in the series. It was edited by Blanche Sewell, who also edited The Pirate, which is another famous Judy Garland movie, which infamously during the shooting of that movie, her mental health was really, really bad. Also, she edited Grand Hotel and Honky Tonk. But another interesting thing is that Blanche was the assistant to Viola Lawrence. And Viola Lawrence is regarded as Hollywood's first lady film cutter. So like one of the first big female film editors of uh, back in the day. And she worked her way up the ladder, worked for a bunch of different small and big production companies, and ultimately became a supervising editor at Columbia. She believed in the power of close-ups and highlighting actors' eyes to convey drama and emotion. Here are the synopses. IMDb. When a tornado rips through Kansas, Dorothy Gale and her dog Toto are whisked away in their house to the magical land of Oz. They follow the yellow brick road to the Emerald City to meet the wizard. And on the way, they meet a scarecrow who wants a brain, a tin man who wants a heart, and a cowardly lion who wants courage. The wizard asks them to bring him the Wicked Witch of the West's broom to earn his help. Here's the letterboxed Mm -hmm. one. Young Dorothy finds herself in a magical world where she makes friends with a lion, a scarecrow, and a tin man as they make their way along the yellow brick road to talk with the wizard and ask for the things they miss most in their lives. The Wicked Witch of the West is the only thing that could stop them. That was so bad. That was literally awful. I thought it was okay. Um, The Rotten Tomatoes one is the same as the IMDb one. Unfortunately. And then, okay... (laughs) This is a crazy amount of taglines. Okay, here we go. 
So this is chronological. Mighty miracle show of a thousand delights. Amazing sights to see. The tornado, Munchkinland, horse of a different color, startling balloon ascent, flying monkeys, trees that talk and throw apples. Let's go over the rainbow with Judy and her greatest hit. Hear beloved star Judy Garland sing over the rainbow and other songs. Great on the wide screen. We're off to see the wizard, the wonderful Wizard of Oz. Songs you will sing and dance to. The book that 80 million read. The play that 941 cities saw. Now the greatest Technicolor show world miracle since Snow White. 9,200 living actors in the what? <laughs> in the notable star-studded cast. Is that? <laughs> That seems wrong. <laughs> this does not make sense. Maybe 920 Nine, at the most. 9,000. <laughs> 9, is like, it would be more like 90. Yeah. What? Okay. Sure, 9,200 living actors in the notable star-studded cast. 68 incredibly magnificent sets. Augmented orchestra of 130 pieces. Chorus of 300 rousing voices, 100 minutes of unforgettable entertainment, musical spectacle. If you enjoyed Snow White, you'll go into ex ecstasies over the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> into ecstasies. Gaiety, glory, glamour, <laughs> Metro Goldwyn Mayer's Technicolor Triumph, biggest screen sensation since Snow White, the mighty miracle show that is the talk of America, the greatest picture in the history of entertainment. I love old timey taglines a lot. Yeah, no one's using the word gaiety anymore. <laughs> Gaiety, glory, <laughs> glamour. That is so good. So getting into the cast. A lot of the people in this cast are stars of the 20s, 30s, 40s that we don't know that much about. Or they're just like problematic old men. And I know that we don't super care about a lot of them. So <laughs> I'm going to put a lot of attention on one Miss Judy Garland as Dorothy Gale in this movie. Judy Garland to me is like my Julie Andrews, I would say. Like, obviously, like Audrey's love for Julie Andrews has been intense for longer. Um, But I think the older I get, the more that I love Judy Garland. Yeah. She's... Me too. The... Yeah, she's the one and only. Although... She's an icon. I was kind of standing even as a kid, even as a baby. Like... No, you were, but Judy was... Or, uh, but Julie was your queen. But we're yeah. going to get into this. That was a we're going to get race. into our yeah, <laughs> yeah, into our childhood love. The movies that she's most famous for having been in are Wizard of Oz obviously, A Star is Born, Meet Me in St. Louis, Judgment at Nuremberg and Summerstock. She is a huge pop culture figure, huge example of the tragic heroine, kind of in the vein of like an Amy Winehouse but like over way more years, like with way more comebacks and way more like plot points to her life cuz obviously she lived to be 47. But there are so many elements of her story that are really interesting. She started off in vaudeville. Her parents were vaudeville performers. She was one of a trio of sisters called the Gum Sisters. And then they became the, uh, the Garland Sisters. She was born as Ethel Gum. That was like her birth name. She was put on prescription drugs really early, like before she even got signed to any major studio. She was taking uppers and downers because her mom put them or put her on them. And that was kind of an issue that like plagued her entire life. There are some major themes to her life, notably gay men. Her dad was caught with another man when she was a kid and her parents separated. She got married like four or five times and several of them ended up being gay or kind of being gay from the beginning. Like she she and the gays are very intertwined in a lot of different in complicated ways. She was basically forced by MGM to have two abortions with her first two pregnancies. She was pretty young when she got pregnant. Troubled from the start, the marriage was doomed when Judy got pregnant. She wanted a baby, but a pregnancy would have cost MGM millions. The studio convinced her husband and, of course, her mom. 
Though written in the third person, these are Judy Garland's words. Where are we going? Never mind, said Mother, you'll see. They drove for about a half hour and pulled up in front of a dreary little establishment outside of town. Her mother took Judy by the hand, led her inside to a shabby little office. In a few minutes, David, her mother, and MGM were satisfied. She was in this series of movies when she was a teenager with Mickey Rooney, who was like two years older than her and also kind of like uh, stylized as like an ugly duckling teenager vibe. Um, And she had this huge crush on him, but he didn't like her back. But they grew close anyway. Also, one really interesting thing about her is that she was kind of in the mix with like Rita Hayworth and Lana Turner and all these women of the era. And she really wanted to be perceived as like as glamorous as they were. And despite the fact that everyone at MGM and basically everyone she ever encountered in the industry knew that she was this like unforgettable, iconic talent, they still insisted upon finding ways to shit on her, to tell her she was ugly to put her on diet pills, to put her in insane shapewear. Like, she just got beat down yeah. by this system so hard. But yeah, she's she's one of those super iconic, relatable, downtrodden, like perpetually yearning actress, singers. She's kind of Lana-ish. She's kind of the blueprint for people like Lana a little bit, I think, too. I love her. I think she's so talented. If you haven't listened to Judy Garland live at Carnegie Hall, you definitely should. It's incredible. And we will obviously gush more about her later on. So I will leave it at that. We had Frank Morgan as Professor Marvel, Gatekeeper, Carriage Driver, The Guard, and The Wizard. We have Ray Bolger as The Scarecrow. We have Burt Lair as Cowardly Lion and Jack Haley as The Tin Man. And it's pretty universally acknowledged and documented that, like, none of those men, especially the Scarecrow, Lion, and Tin Man, had, like, any interest in being friends with Judy or, like, providing any sort of, like, positive environment for her. I had to work with three very professional, very professional men, you know, Jack Haley and, and Bert Lauer and Ray Bolger. And they had so much makeup on, you know, then one was a tin man and one was a scarecrow and one was a cowardly lion. And they were so busy complaining about their makeups and each one was was uh, making bets as to which makeup was the most difficult. And they all gained weight all the way through the picture, you know, and they all pretended. They just, uh, but whenever we do that little dance up the yellow brick road. Yeah, I remember that. I was supposed to be with them. Yeah. You know. They'd crouch up. They'd shut me out. I, they'd close in and the three of them, and I would be in back of them dancing. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, and I, did, I wasn't, I wasn't good enough, you know, to say, wait a minute. Uh, and so the director, Victor Fleming, was darling man. He was always up on a boom. Would say, hold it, you three dirty hands, let that little girl in there. <laughs> In fact, the only person who she considered like a true ally on the cast was Margaret Hamilton, who played the Wicked Witch of the West and Miss Gulch. Um, I found out that she was born in Cleveland. She went to Hathaway Brown School, which is maybe 10 minutes from where I live was an angel and she's really funny in interviews when she's talking about getting cast as the witch when she's talking about getting burnt with all the shitty yeah. special effects she's super funny he said uh, they're sort of interested in you uh, for a part in the wizard of oz and i said oh gosh think of that i said i love that story from the time i was four years old what is it and he said well the witch and i said <laughs> the witch <laughs> Then he said the final thing. He said, yes, what else? And to go back to the Tin Man thing, if you know anything about this movie, you will know the fun fact, which is... The makeup. Yes, which, Audrey, do you want to explain the makeup thing? Um, I kind of forget, but basically the makeup was poisonous and bitches were passing out. Bitches were sick. Like, literally. Yeah. And also well, the snow was asbestos, wasn't it? Yes, the snow was asbestos. And, there you go. And to, to clarify with the Tin Man thing, there was an entirely different guy casted for the part, but he, like, inhaled too much of, like, the makeup. And I think they were using, like, aluminum powder or something yeah. insane. And his lungs got coated in 
chemicals. And so they had to switch it out. And this is the thing about this movie that I'm sure we'll talk about more too, which is like they were inventing everything as they went. So a lot of messy shit happened. With this cast, last but not least, we have Billy Burke as Glinda. She was born in 1884, which is wild. She's a Leo, which is not surprising to me. And just a fun fact about her, she was married to Florence Zigfield of the Zigfield Follies. So her grandness totally checks out with that piece of context. The budget was, at the time, 2777000 which seems like nothing, but adjusted mm-hmm. for inflation, that's 59. It's adjusted. <laughs> Once it's adjusted, it's 59,725,019. And Titanic for comparison was 200 million. Pirates of the Caribbean was 140 million. So that's still, that's not, relatively it's not modest, crazy, but it's cause like, it's not like they could spend all this money on VFX at the time. Like there's, everything right. is so practical and People weren't paid that much, like relative nope. relative to now. So because again, there weren't so many rules. It was kind no. of the Wild West. There were <laughs> so. like no rules. So we don't know opening weekend because mm-hmm. again, Wild West vibes. The worldwide gross is 25637669 While the film was sufficiently popular at the box office, it failed to make a profit for MGM until its 1949 re-release, earning only $3 million on a $2.7 million budget, which made it MGM's most expensive production at that time. You be the critics. All right. So the critic score was 98%. That's incredible. And the critic consensus on Rotten Tomatoes was an absolute masterpiece whose groundbreaking visuals and deft storytelling are still every bit as resonant. The Wizard of Oz is a must-see film for young and old. Here are some critic opinions. These are two quotes from the 1939 New York Times review. By courtesy of the Wizards of Hollywood, The Wizard of Oz reached the Capitol screen yesterday as a delightful piece of wonderworking, which had the youngster's eyes shining and brought a quietly amused gleam to the wiser ones of the oldsters. Not since (laughs) Disney's Snow White has anything quite so fantastic succeeded half so well. Judy Garland's Dorothy is a pert and fresh-faced miss with the wonder-lit eyes of a believer in fairy tales. But the bomb fantasy is at its best when the scarecrow, the woodman, and the lion are on the move. <laughs> Hateful. Okay. And then from the 96 Roger Ebert review. That's weird. Why is there a I don't 90- know why it exists. I have <laughs> okay. no idea. Um, <laughs> A brassy young child star, a young Ethel Merman, say, would have been fatal to the material because she would have approached it with too much bravado. Garland's whole persona projected a tremulous uncertainty, a wistfulness. When she hoped that troubles would melt like lemon drops, you believed that she had troubles. The Wizard of Oz has a wonderful surface of comedy and music, special effects and excitement, but we still watch it six decades later because its underlying story penetrates straight to the deepest insecurities of childhood, stirs them, and then reassures them. As adults, we love it because it reminds us of a journey we have taken. That is why any adult in control of in control of a child is sooner or later going to suggest a viewing of The Wizard of Oz. Okay, so now audience opinions. We had 89% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes and an average of four stars on Letterboxd. Audience opinions, five stars. Absolute masterpiece, way funnier than I remember, way cooler from a production standpoint and way more beautiful. It's The Wizard of fucking Oz. What could I possibly say about this? Shit's great. Five stars, it's a timeless classic. 4.5 stars. Okay, this is like the most Letterboxd thing I could possibly put here, but it, it feels relevant. My gal pals and I were absolutely hooting and hollering whenever the hot Scarecrow came on screen to do a silly dance and fall down. We decided Scarecrow is a lanky, sensitive DIY boy who stands in front of you at your roommate's friend's house show. And at first you're annoyed, but then he notices he's blocking your view and he apologizes so much, maybe even too much. And after the show, you joke around with him and laugh when he trips over his own dirty Converse laces. And suddenly it's 2 a.m. and you're heading home 
home and you think you're going to miss him most of all. Okay. <laughs> and then <laughs> one star. The Wizard of Oz may be the staple of American pop culture and is no doubt legendary for its influence and cultural impact, but it is also a film that belongs to its era for it looks awfully dated today. Shut up. Okay, cultural context. I think we touched on everything. Obviously, The Shadow of Snow White was really significant and MGM wanted to live up to that hype and that impact. There were extremely brutal working conditions for everyone involved. I'm sure directors had tons of power, but everyone else was kind of just like at their mercy. And then, of course, this is the era of Rita Hayworth, Lana Turner the studio system. And a lot of these actors were kind of still theater actors at their core transitioning into film. Like film actors weren't as common of a thing as they are now. I don't remember when we first watched this movie. I have a lot of childhood memories about it. What do you think? Yeah, it's like another one of those pre-memory things. Like I don't remember a time when I didn't know Mm -hmm. this movie. So it had to be around. We actually this is just coming to me now. We actually did have a DVD of it in the van movies. We did? Yes. It was it was a sleeper. Okay. It was a sleeper. <laughs> okay, okay. But I just remembered what the case looked like. It was like one of those really flat ones and it was like kind of papery. Okay. But we had it on VHS too. So that was like the original. Oh, wait. This makes sense because how else would we have watched the behind the scenes feature so many times? Yeah, but we watched the behind the scenes with Angela Lansbury (laughs) many times. Um, But they were a little bit more Ken Burns documentary style and a little less fun early 2000s style. So I think it was like a little bit less fun of a watch for us at the time. It was very educational though. Yes, very educational. We both have been characters from the Wizard of Oz for Halloween more than once. I've been Dorothy probably three times and I've been the Wicked Witch or a witch, which is basically her, except I don't do green. Like, I feel like maybe without the green, you're not really committed. You're just a witch. But either way. that's true. Yeah. I mean, the intention was there. (laughs) (laughs) The intentionality was there. I obviously was Glinda several times. That dress... It's too good. I remember in preschool, I dressed up as Glinda and then my favorite teacher also dressed up as Glinda, coincidentally. We also had a Dorothy Barbie and her feet lit up. We had a Glinda Barbie. We had a Wizard of Oz Polly Polly Pocket Pocket. set. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I remember that really well because there was so many like cool features to it, like Glinda's bubble Glinda's bubble was in there and you could put her in the middle of it. And then there was like a, a part of the pink plastic that like swirled around. So you could make it look yes. like the bubble was closed or open. It was cool. It was so good. It was yeah. so good. It's, it's funny because I had a Polly Pocket of uh, Snow White too. So something about 1930s and Polly Pockets. Also, I have to say the merchandising empire of the Wizard of Oz lives on seeing as I have my Dolls Kill Wizard of Oz crop top on currently. And I love it. This is like my favorite shirt. I just remembered another thing we had. We had that book where you could press the different faces and it would play the songs. Remember we had that pop up book of like the Frank L. Baum story. And it was like so cool to us. Like it was so nice that it was upstairs. Like that wasn't a toy. It was like... It was like a coffee table book situation. But I would look at it all the time. It was really It was sweet. Like when I was watching it this time, I felt like I had the whole thing memorized. Like the sounds of it and everything. Oh yeah. Another thing I wanted to say is that I edited a children's theatrical mm-hmm. production of The Wizard of Oz in, I think, 2021 or 20 or last year. I think it was 2021. <laughs> yeah. But I literally, like, ripped the movie and used the movie to supplement what I was doing because we recorded it all on green screen. And it was just like such an undertaking because it was COVID protocol. So none, <laughs> none of the kids were ever in the room together. But I edited an entire production of The Wizard of Oz. That was like one of those classic, like only during COVID would this shit happen. Like, yeah, it's so goofy, but it is really impressive. I remember thinking that, too. Yeah, like I edited the movie, quite literally. (laughs) Yes, you did. 
I watched this movie on the Spectrum app. Did you? It's on HBO. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, well, I watched it on the Spectrum app. And I thought you did, too, because it was like, watch again, question mark. And I was like, I didn't watch this. It's on HBO. It's very accessible. Shout out to that. I highly, 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 highly recommend watching this movie and then returning to talk about it with us. Hello, everyone. My name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all of the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com. Welcome back, everyone. It's time (laughs) to follow the yellow brick road into this discourse about (laughs) the Wizard of Oz. Audrey, take us to church. You're up. After Judy opened her mouth and sang somewhere over the rainbow, way up high, I was crying immediately. I was crying. It was like, okay, it's curtains. Like, (laughs) I was not expecting that. Yeah. Uh, I thought the sound of music crying tally i mean ultimately the sound of music crying tally did beat the wizard of oz crying tally but like yes not by that much i mean it's just like the the history of it all is it's just oozing from every frame of this movie to see so much being done practically and the only reason it is being done practically is because they had no other choice like the the technology did not exist yet but to put that level of effort into the craftsmanship of the frame and to know what it's going to look like when you're shooting it to have the entire vision within frame is something that is so rare now though like I just miss that I miss I miss the craftspeople and the production designers having a complete vision and knowing exactly what they're going to get. The, the people, a lot of times the VFX workers are outsourced and they're in other countries and they have no connection to this production and they, they will never talk to the director themselves. And it's just so outsourced to the point where it becomes really inauthentic and it feels disjointed and I think that yeah that's just refreshing to see just like seeing Judy Garland do her thing is just so stirring to me like she's so precious in this movie and also like bitch when she's locked in that tower and she's like Auntie M I'm frightened that made me cry that whole part (laughs) like just like it's so believable like she genuinely seems so scared and is just like even the parts where it's very like oh you can go on this walk with me like I can help you why not she just sells it so much and she is such a she fills my heart with happiness so profoundly I just love her so much Yeah. Another thing that we didn't mention in the first half is that the whole thing when it goes from sepia to color, where they literally just had a sepia set and a sepia toned stand in do the opening of the door part. And then Judy comes in in the color set. And I think a lot of people don't know about that, or they just assume that it was done in post, but they did that practically too, because 
they didn't have what well, I mean, if you can do it practically now, it's the opposite. But what it used to be is if it can be done practically, we would like to do it practically. Let's save the money and do it that way. And now it's become the opposite, which is fucked, but it has. Yeah. Even when I was like a little kid, I would like anticipate that part so much just because the reveal was so fun. Yeah. As far as the music goes, I do feel like The Wizard of Oz is underrated in terms of like everyone knows all of these songs in, in kind of like just people don't recognize The Wizard of Oz as a musical in the way that they recognize The Sound of Music or West Side Story or other huge movies as musicals. I kind of feel like the reason why the music, other than Over the Rainbow, isn't that well remembered is because when people think of The Wizard of Oz, they think of the visuals and Judy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And like, I'm melting. If I Only Had a Brain is so good. Like, the lyrics... I would while away the hours conferring with the flowers, consulting with the rain. Yeah. <laughs> kind of poetic. That's so they're <laughs> so good. All of the lyrics are so clever. Like, and same thing with the Tin Man song. And like, okay. King okay. of the Forest, maybe not. King of the Forest. <laughs> King of the Forest. I feel like actually is good, but the actor the is like doing too much he just made a choice you know and I can appreciate the choice I can appreciate a bold choice but you can tell that he had made that bold vocal choice in the booth and then when he's doing it on set and playback there's a bit of a incongruence between the choice he made when he was recording and then what he had to do in real life like I think that maybe is why it feels weird. It, there's just something not completely cohesive about the vocal and the performance. Yeah. It's also like genuinely hard to understand what he's saying by the end of that song. Yeah. But I did, the part of it that I appreciated more than like I ever have is that part where they're like, what about an elephant? And he's like, I wrapped it in cellophane. Like just the little yeah, speak, yeah, the yeah, speaking yeah. part. I thought that was fun. Yeah. Okay, I actually feel like that part through the entire wizard part is really funny. Like I looked up the screenplay and copy and pasted some of my favorite lines from the wizard when he's giving them awards and stuff because they're so funny. Like he gives the scarecrow a doctorate of thinkology, first of all. (laughs) Second of all. Yeah. When he gives the lion his medal, he says, therefore, for meritorious conduct, extraordinary valor, conspicuous bravery against wicked witches, I award you the triple cross. And then when he's like getting in the hot air balloon, he says, I'm off to confer, converse, and otherwise hobnob with my brother wizards. It's just really funny. And also when he's describing the balloon incident and he says, I was performing spectacular feats of stratospheric skill never before attempted by civilized man. There is such a funny and interesting commentary that definitely was included in the original story about like how people with power are just super randomly chosen. Like it's all just dumb luck to get any of it. Yeah. And that everyone is faking it. The wizard is faking it. And at the same time, the Tin Man and the Lion and the Scarecrow and Dorothy have everything they need. Within. Within themselves. Yeah. But they feel like they're fakers, but they're not. Yeah, I mean, it it demonstrates the difference between those who know they don't possess something, but pretend like they do, and those who know they don't possess something and let it defeat them. Like, the message of that is a little bit confusing, because they ultimately they get the thing that they were wanting or wishing for. It's like the scarecrow, the lion and the tin man get that thing physically from the wizard, but from Dorothy, yes, it's within. 
But the yes. rest of them get the thing. Okay. What struck me this time around is that when I was a kid, I was like, oh, they got the heart and they got the medal and they got the diploma. Like they got their things. But what was so obvious to me this time is that. It's just a symbol of the thing. They already had all of those things. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, oh, now that I have the piece of paper, I can say that I'm smart. Or now that I have this medal, because someone is acknowledging it, it's yeah. real. Yeah, but and it, and it does like make them feel better about it. That it makes them feel better in their insecurity. Like, and it, I mean, you know, like it or not, like it did. They did feel better about it. I'm wondering if there was ever a version of it where at the end, like Glinda could have been like when she's talking to Dorothy and she's like, you had it in you all along. She could have turned to them and been like, you also had yeah. what you needed all along. <laughs> the, the terseness of the ending is hilarious. Like, she's just like, it, yeah. she's just like, sorry, bitch. Yeah, you had it in you all along. And then she's, she's like, no, she had to learn it herself. Okay, bye. <laughs> like, also, that <laughs> whole, okay, I really don't want to nitpick this movie for obvious reasons. But it's like, just funny. I thought it was funny how terse it was. She had to learn what for herself. Also, another Glinda moment that I really loved was in the beginning where Dorothy's like, I thought witches were ugly. And she was like, no, silly. Only bad witches are ugly. (laughs) (laughs) That just like made me laugh this time around. And you know what? You know what I was thinking about too in this watch is, okay, so if the Wicked Witch of the west is sisters with the wicked witch of the east does that mean and that the wicked witch of the east is also evil does that mean that there's a wicked witch of the south and that she's also good and she's sisters with the north it would be the good witch of the south yeah yeah can she not be rehabilitated like you just murdered her sister in cold blood (laughs) you didn't mean to murder the sister was that a genuine accident well if there was ever a reason to be evil that would be a good one. I mean, that's a good reason. <laughs> I mean, like, isn't that in Wicked? Isn't that like part of it? She uses the grief in her life as a reason to be Wicked. Which, this is not a Wicked podcast, <laughs> but it has always annoyed me that she sings No Good Deed and then is like, never mind. Mentally, I didn't understand it because I didn't understand the meaning of the figure of speech, No Good Deed Goes Unpunished. And yeah. I kind of still don't. I know what it means, but it doesn't like click in my brain. Like what? Like, are they just saying like, I'm a good person, but bad things still happen? Or like, what are they saying? I think it's kind of like, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Right, but I'm just like, that's such a negative figure of speech. Like just because you got punished, that doesn't correlate to a good deed. Like, you know, just because a bad thing happened, that doesn't mean that it was like in response to your good deed or something like what? Somebody please explain that song to me. Someone slide into the DMs. No, I can explain the song, but the phrase, I always felt like that phrase didn't actually make that much sense with what the song was about. Okay, I know that this is not a new take, but... You meet the scarecrow and you're like, he's kind of gay. And then you meet the tin man and you're like, oh, he's extremely gay. And then you meet the lion and he literally says, I was born to be a sissy and I'm just a dandy lion. I'm going to be honest. I never thought that. (laughs) I never thought that until this time. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like I, I just did not view them as humans or Same. like anything. I was just like, these are these creepy ass costume people. They all just seem so gay. And I think that's really funny and I love it. And it does speak to, as Audrey was saying in the beginning, the whole friend of Dorothy turn of phrase, which yeah. is like a old timey way of saying that someone's gay. See 1995's Clueless. Which also leads me to this, which is, I think of them as like, gays and their girl right and when they go and save her from the tower all I could think to myself is I wish that gays would go that hard for their girls but they don't I feel like they don't you you don't think your friends would save you from something it's more like this 
I can rely on my gays for their opinions on things. Yeah. But not for acts of service in yeah. any way. Yeah. That is the difference. I'm just the mother and they just disrespect their mother constantly. Yeah. That's just it. But I have lesbians, <sighs> so at least there's that. I got to give a shout out to Margaret Hamilton as the witch. Every single moment she's on screen, she is giving 110%. She's so unselfconscious in her performance and it is amazing to witness. Yeah. I mean, I think we take performances like that for granted, especially in those early days, because you can't blame them. But women are so concerned with being pretty and having a glamorous role and not wanting to be ugly, not wanting to especially be uglier, like to be made uglier. Yeah. So I have huge respect towards any actress who knew about all that and said, fuck it, I'm doing it. Like, yeah. And to commit to that and go all the way. Even in like the child production of The Wizard of Oz that that I edited and being around when kids are casted as villains, a lot of times the girls like don't, they like don't want to lean into it. They don't, oh, you know, they don't want yes. to be uglier, quote, uglier. When you are watching that, you wish that they would so badly because it just ultimately it hurts the show as a whole. But it's like, I yeah. get it. I get why you don't want to, but I wish you would because there's so much power in that. Like in my high school experience, going from being like grandma to being like glamorous person in casting, like no, and, it's rare. It's rare that a, that a girl yeah. in high school can really embrace it at the yeah. time. One thing with the Margaret Hamilton thing that's interesting on top of it all is that I think it's very notable that she and Judy Garland got along so well because they were both probably treated as like the ugly ones on set, which again, continues to be insane. Fucking crazy. But they were calling her, calling Judy Garland like a hunchback and like the little piggy with pigtails and stuff like that. Like they were so mean to her. And why? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's crazy the women that had this they had a whole complex about being portrayed, like thinking they're ugly, like even Barbara, because yep. people would tell them that. And um, what the fuck? Because Barbara is so fucking beautiful. It's insane. Yeah. Like she's she's ethereal to me. Yeah. She is really, really beautiful. Yeah. I agree. One part of the movie that made me feel a little weird was at the end when she was like, I'm never leaving here again. And if I can't find, if I can't find what I'm looking for in my own backyard, then I never really lost it in the first place. I wrote that too. This is another, that's something that I wrote. Huh? Is like. Yeah, what do you think about that? Like, if we are going to, if we want to use home as a, as a metaphor for the self, I think it works. Yeah. Like, it works fully. Like, you can go searching and searching and searching for validation or love or whatever, whatever it is that you're missing. And if, if you ultimately can't like recognize that or find it in yourself, then you're not going to feel that you have it. So I think if you think of the home, if you think of Kansas as the self and like Oz as like the world, then it works. But if you're going to think of it as No, like literally if I ever leave home, like if you're ever not happy staying in your own backyard, then fuck you and you're not grateful and you should stay home. Like that's not the takeaway, I would hope. But in terms of like a child's mind, they might see it that way. And I actually wrote that. I was like, I wonder if anybody ever saw this movie and decided to never move because of this. I think when you think about it for like kids, a part of it might be like, I'm never going to try to be someone other than myself ever again. Again, what Mm -hmm. you're saying with with home as a metaphor for self. I also think that a way better execution of home as an idea of coming back to yourself is home from the whiz. Yeah. Like that is like a way. They like corrected. Yeah, they like corrected it with that song. It makes more sense. They almost make it seem like she regrets the journey. And I think right. that, I think that's that's the problem, too, is like 
she just met three incredible friends along the way <laughs> and three she incredible queer <laughs> figures and she yeah. grew from it and they almost make it seem like she regrets that yeah. but i i think that maybe that's why it feels also off-putting when she has to say goodbye to her friends and then she's in the house and it's like oh they they were here all along it's the same thing it's the same oh th- this was here all along i just didn't see it yeah like theme that that pulls through the whole thing. Yeah, and and it's it is a really good lesson in in part to say look at your surroundings and like actually see them. Like actually yeah. appreciate the people in your life or the, your home or whatever it is. Th- that's not a bad lesson, but as long as it doesn't get to the point of become a hermit or <laughs> Yeah. Never move. Don't change because what are you doing? Like, I feel like it yeah, can be yeah, construed yeah, yeah. in different ways. Yes. I definitely agree. You know, all the grasping for something that you think you need, like your brains or your heart or your courage, and then you actually have it all along, you know, it ties in with everything. And it's about like aspiring and then you get to where you want to be. And then who's there? the wizard who's just a guy who's bullshitting yeah and you realize oh it's actually all bullshit that it is a that is super true in life like yeah. when when you graduate college and you get the degree and you're like well I don't really feel much smarter especially us because we right. went to like media we went to like <laughs> liberal arts college so it's different but like obviously if we were doctors we would know a lot more than we did before but like <laughs> yeah I remember when I finished college I was like well I feel the same if not slightly worse <laughs> And I'm I'm in the hole. (laughs) But But I have the piece of paper. So now it's my turn to pretend, you know. Yeah, now it's my turn to really pretend forever. It's like, especially in in creative endeavors, you're never going to feel like you're done. Um, And there's no like finality to a life in the arts in the way that there is to like becoming a doctor or or becoming something that there's a literal date and time where you become that thing and you are that thing. <laughs> yeah. A doctor is a good example. Yeah. <laughs> or like a licensed cosmetologist. Something yeah. where it's like, here is your title and your qualification. And you can and, do it. Yeah. And you can do it. To its full extent. And you will never have to question, am I actually doing it? Like, it's... <laughs> Is it worthwhile? Uh, obviously. Duh. I think it's my favorite movie. Whoa. I mean, it beats Aquamarine. Well, that's actually, <laughs> last night as I was watching it, I was like, okay, this and Aquamarine. <laughs> like, I literally thought that to myself. I mean, I could see the it beating Aqu- out on that one. I could see it beating Aquamarine in different categories. Like, if there was a rubric... Yeah. It's like Aquamarine would beat The Wizard of Oz in, in the modern and applicable to life category. And yes. The Wizard of Oz would win in like aesthetic level of iconicness, you know, like yeah, film history. Like it's got more Visuals. like merit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, The Wizard of Oz is, is The Wizard of Oz for a reason. And if you haven't seen it, what's going on literally what I don't are you think, doing i don't think anyone hasn't seen it though not not in I this, don't know. not on this podcast <laughs> i guess we'll take not a in poll. our discord i yeah. feel like people have seen it but i'm really excited to hear about other people's experiences with this movie because you know everyone's been dorothy for halloween at some point everyone had their little phase oh we also got to include us doing the lullaby league obviously The Wizard of Oz was and is a huge part of our understanding of movies and things that make us happy. And it's not overrated. It is as good as people say. 
And I love it. I've never even heard someone try to make that argument. It's beautiful and perfect. And I cannot recommend it enough. Well, on that note, <laughs> you can find more from us at evergreenpodcast.com slash sleepover dash cinema and keep up with our latest creative projects at tupingproductions.com. We're on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube at Sleepover Cinema and post a full video version of each episode on YouTube every Thursday. You can follow me, Audrey, at Audrey Anna Leach on everything. On our YouTube channel with over 1,000 subscribers. Thank you very much. See how I didn't mention that? I was like, yeah. (laughs) We don't need to beg anymore. And you can follow me, Hannah, at Hannah Ray Leach on Instagram and at Lana Von Trapp on Twitter. And of course, you can join our Discord server at the link in the episode description or on evergreenpodcasts.com. You can check out our merch at tupingproductions.com slash shop and our case by code 15 sleepover and if you like the show uh, leave us a review send it to a friend sleepover <laughs> cinema is a production of evergreen podcasts produced edited and engineered by us hannah and audrey leach sleepover cinema is mixed by sean roll hoffman with theme music by josh perlman hall executive producer is michael dealoya bye bye <laughs> somewhere i was about to do that <laughs> i know you were that's why i did that is so disrespectful My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.